0: Hello, everyone. This is Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. Welcome to another episode of Tech Expansive. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. This week, we thought we would jump into the Google News that we saw come out of there, what was at least framed as a hardware event, but really ended up being a bit more than just a hardware event, or at least not as exclusively focused on hardware as hardware events seem to be. And we'll dive into some of the other uh, stories from the, the week as well, looking at Netflix earnings uh, and and what that means for the, the world of streaming. But first, we, we did see a lot of announcements at the Google event. Google released what they're calling their truly wireless tiny pixel buds with uh, adaptive sound, which means you, as you walk into a noisy environment, it will boost the volume. They announced that their Stadia cloud gaming service will launch next month on November 19th, for those who paid $130 for the Founders Edition package. We saw the uh, unveiling of the Pixelbook Go Chromebook with a 16 by 9 13.3-inch display that, uh, Ross, you talked about last week. We also saw the debut of a couple of Pixel phones. Ross, what were some of your your thoughts from the uh, announcements we saw coming out of Google?
1: Yeah, I thought... um... You know the the it was very mixed reaction uh across uh, the range of products. Uh, I would say that in general, the reaction to the new pixel buds was promising uh, the extended range, the design of them the uh, integration some of this kind of functionality that they had promised with the original Pixel Buds, which there was also quite a bit of excitement around when they were first announced, but they, they didn't quite live up to the promise. Uh, Sean, you've mentioned uh, several times about how everyone is now in this category, in addition to, of course, a billion third party, uh, audio companies. And, and so, you know, much like Microsoft, they are, uh, entering late, uh, although with a, with a smaller design, uh, that, uh, may maybe a bit more, uh, aesthetically pleasing. Uh, the Pixelbook Go is kind of interesting. It's a, you know, Prior to this, there was a huge gap between where Google priced its Chromebooks at kind of this $1,000 price point and where most other companies price their Chromebooks at the $250, sub-$250, $250, sub-$300 range. So this is them really trying to hit kind of a mid-range price point, uh, $700, which has been a highly sustainable price point in the Windows market. Uh, but we'll, we'll have to see how uh, a Chromebook does uh, in that space it doesn't have any kind of convertible features it does have a touch screen but it's not detachable it can't rotate around like a yoga device so so it's very much a kind of mainstream um mainstream laptop clamshell offering and then uh the pixel itself uh you know they and we we're talking a little bit about this before you know historically that phone has distinguished itself on the strength of its photography, uh, particularly its low light performance. And over the past year, we have seen many companies catch up uh, to that level of low light performance. So, that is something that I think consumers really appreciate, and it's, it's literally a night and day uh, mm-hmm. comparison. So uh, they are continuing to push the envelope there in some respects, but they have this extended presentation about taking photographs of stars and high dynamic range. And I think that in many respects, and I, I felt this with some of the Features that uh, Apple rolled out on the uh, iPhone Pro as well were just, for many consumers, getting past the point of diminishing returns. Sure, uh, and uh, there are just not that many. <clears throat> unlike low light, you know, which, which has been a challenge for a long time, there, there just aren't that many scenarios where you're going to be taking a photo and these kinds of technologies are going to make that significant of, of a difference. So I, I think that's that's the challenge right now in, in smartphone photography, although I understand that from the science element of it, there's still a lot they can do uh, to produce uh, results that exceed our our expectations. So the, the other thing on the new Pixel phone was this radar sensor, uh, which has resulted in a somewhat higher price, I think, uh, for the phones. And um, that has invited more direct comparison uh, with the other premium brands, uh, whereas before this, the Pixel was seen as a, a strong value. I think that now uh in part because of this radar sensor that provides some benefit uh and some stuff that is perhaps not as beneficial. Um they're they, they, they don't have as strong as a val- of a value message uh as they had in the past and they're they're you know trying to push higher up uh in, into that Samsung, Apple, premium tier that has been very difficult to crack.
0: It's interesting, you know, as you note, there was a lot more focus on some of the things like uh, like their radar sensors to more quickly unlock the phone. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with your assessment that the camera improvements are nice, but probably more than most consumers will will use at least until we really start to unlock some really interesting. Use case scenarios where people suddenly decide, "Oh, I really want this extended night sight, so I can take amazing shots of of stars." And, right, and the right. irony is that most of us live in urban settings where we don't get to see the stars. So we're now that would really... be
1: impressive if they could capture the stars here in New York City. That would impress me. Yeah. yeah so, so
0: maybe that's the the killer use case scenario that they got. Sure. I think that's more out. X-ray than radar. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was clear that they're. Focus from the event more broadly, while it was a hardware event, was really focused on ambient computing, a more more broad philosophy of what Google should be. Even in their opening remarks, they talked about bringing a more helpful Google for you. So there was a lot of focus on uh, a a new assistant, which will ship with um, Google. the pixel 4 you saw google also debut a, a their first voice recorder mobile app which they can uh, transcribe speech in real time right without an internet connection
1: i think it's a very cool feature i you know i've done disclosure some work for a, a company called otter uh and uh that app uh, does uh, real-time transcription at present it does need an internet connection to to do it so the transcription happens in the cloud uh, but i think it's a, a very useful app i've, I've used it uh, even before i did work uh, for them i was uh, using it with a lot of uh, a lot of interviews uh, and i could see how it could be a killer app for students uh, attending mm-hmm. lectures and so forth so i you know with all due respect to to otter and google i i I think it's a it's a cool uh app and it's great that it can do it offline particularly when you think about google's global focus and and focus in countries where uh they don't necessarily have the uh broadband 4g speeds uh that we we take for granted uh here in the u.s now but but i i think it raises an interesting question which is you know how is that an exclusive app you know, is it going to be exclusive to Pixel? How long will it be exclusive to Pixel? I mean, historically, what they've done is they have released these new apps for the Pixel, like Google Lens, and then after some time, they will bring it to other Android phones and the iPhone. So uh, I would imagine that this would um, uh, this would follow a similar pattern, but it it also uh, raised some Concern, you know, it's consistent with concern that Google is decoupling some of the service-based perks from the Pixel. So, you know, in previous generations, if you bought a Pixel phone, you had unlimited uh, original resolution uh, quality of of photos and videos that you could store in, uh, in Google Photos. And they have... Walked back that uh, that benefit. In fact, they had already announced that it was going to go away in 2020. But now it's kind of official; they're not supporting that anymore. I wonder really how much of how much it resonated with people because the the high resolution versions that you can store unlimited in Google Photo is is actually quite good, you know. Uh, but but they definitely marketed it. Um, as, as a benefit and, and it was something nice I guess to to hold out there. I wonder if it caused any kind of resentment um, uh, among uh, non pixel users so so they they 've been a little dicey with with how they 've described that benefit. They also offered uh, they, they kind of played around with that terminology uh, with with the Google one membership program where they talk about how oh you don't have to worry about photo storage anymore well well yeah you do you know because if you if you put it in the original quality it still counts against your your quota you just have a bigger quota so right. so that you know they as as often as the case they are evolving it um, and uh, it's still a great service i think google photos is still a great service and i think that In the long term, having everyone on the same playing field uh, is better for everyone, but if I was in the market for a Pixel phone and this was something that was important to me, I could see how it's kind of a bummer.
0: So, Going back to your your comments on transcription and whether that stays within the Pixel 4 model, I mean that has not been, to, to your point, the case where these will stay with that new premium phone but that eventually and sometimes quickly moves to other phones and i could easily imagine this feature eventually showing up in google assist where mm-hmm. you can just say hey hey google and it's built into all the devices that are around you that that then truly becomes an ambient computer environment where i can say hey google assist transcribed conversation we're going to have right now we're recording right. the conversation that we're going to have right now so you could, might be in a in a meeting and able to, to record that conversation and transcribe it. Whether you're using that in the household environment, I don't know, but I could easily see that in a business environment.
1: Yeah, And, it's, it's... and I know
0: my kids would often love to record what I have to say, so give <laughs> it back to me and be like, no, dad, this is exactly what you oh, said. Man, Here's the Google transcription. That is straight out of Black Mirror. Uh, that's the, right. uh,
1: that's... I mean, the, the good thing about issuing the command in say a conference room is that now everyone is aware you know, you're you're being recorded, so uh, for better or worse, you uh, you know you you are maybe think twice about about what you say. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I I definitely could see that type of environment where you want to record brainstorms or mm-hmm. you know note taking or different things like that. And especially in a Google Assist environment where it can recognize different voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it, you know, we've talked in previous podcasts how that's not quite uh, where where we want it to be, but right. that get, it will get better over time, and then you'll be able to to record that. Uh, with the radar sensor, do you think we'll see other use case scenarios for that? I mean, uh, obviously, the idea of a radar sensor is um, to you know to be able to to measure things at, um, at a distance, um, and can can do other you know there's things that that sensor can do beyond just unlock your phone more quickly right do you think we'll start to see that yeah sure i uh, open up other use cases sure
1: they uh you know they talked about the work that they had done in shrinking down uh, the the radar sensor the under something that they've called product um project solely I believe. Um, But sure, there are all kinds of uh, applications for motion detection um, Mm -hmm. in in security sensors and all kinds of um, wearables, I would think, where proximity. Um, and, and, and understanding motion and specific kinds of motion, uh, would be useful. It's probably, it would probably be great for, for example, uh, helping to determine the kind of exercises you're, you're doing in addition to an accelerometer and some of the other sensors that are used in conjunction with that today. So yeah, probably, um. Uh, a a lot of automotive uh applications, maybe some safety applications and detecting body movements during a crash,
0: yeah, we definitely see automotive applications at least from an external facing environment where right you're using it for proximity detection and mm-hmm. other things like that yeah, yeah, any other uh, thoughts on the announcements we saw or the the broad move they're trying to suggest around ambient computing in a Google that is not only gathering and synthesizing, organizing the world's information, but also trying to make it a more useful, helpful Google for you in your life?
1: Well, I I would say that compared to some of the previous, say, developer conferences, there probably wasn't as much emphasis on uh, the benefit side of that. You know, there was nothing to compare or compete with things like Project Duplex, which they announced years ago or you know there's not which is fine you know you shouldn't expect that kind of thing at at a a hardware event uh but um i i kind of thought uh you know to to the point you raised uh when we were talking about this last week sean the uh the kind of stuff that they're doing with wi-fi in the home is uh both uh useful and a, a little unsettling uh in that they are driving it into The infrastructure of of the networking. Right. So um, we've had uh, many different mesh Wi-Fi systems that have been on the market for the past couple of years. Google happens to make a very good one and they they up, you know, at, at a great price point and they updated it at this event and not only did they update it but they they built a google mm-hmm. assistant into it so they didn't have a need to update their uh what had been previously their google nest i'm sorry their their google Assistant, google home i'm sorry google home speaker uh they they did update the mini version of it which is probably their best-selling one but but they didn't feel a need to update the middle one uh, because they're building it now into this kind of wi-fi extension hotspot so they are you know on one hand you get this dual benefit of better wi-fi and these little speakers all over the house on the other hand uh, bringing those two things together to me it, it definitely has some benefit, like being able to turn off Wi-Fi to a specific device or a specific user, as we talked about last week, uh, in terms of a nifty parental control. Uh, but um, but it does also kind of, again, drive this assistant deeper into the infrastructure of, of the smart home, I suppose. Well, that's,
0: and that feels like what Google is trying to do here is build out the infrastructure component of the the smart home. At the same time, you really see Amazon through the Alexa ecosystem, I think doing a better job of building out that ambient computing environment by willing to experiment in lots of different places. So some of what I see Google trying to suggest is don't just focus on smartphone hardware. Don't just focus on market share metrics and sales of the device to determine whether it's successful or not, because that whole area of smartphones is maturing quickly, and it's everything that's being built around it that's you know that's growing. So yes, they announced Nest Wi-Fi, which is this Google Wi-Fi, Google you know meets Google Home speaker uh, platform. And it allows you to control a lot more things. And yet at the same time, it's Amazon that seems to be launching a lot of that smart home connected product as well as experimenting in lots of other places. And it's easy for them to do because they don't have a phone. So they they can freely experiment in all of those other places. Google's still a little bit beholden to launching a phone because this is a hardware event that has a, a phone, you know, key component of this for Google, at least in, in recent history, has been to launch a new Pixel phone, and I, I think it's an
1: interesting contrast to Apple too, because Apple doesn't certainly play directly in the smartphone hardware space. I mean, they do have HomePods, so they're they've got a toe in the water there. But but by and large, they have chosen to partner there, which is somewhat of an unusual approach for them. Uh, that said in terms of all of the other touch points you know all of these other next generation post smartphone products if you will they are so far ahead right nobody's touching them in these wireless earbuds mm-hmm. although it is still early nobody's touching them in smart watches nobody is touching them in tablets so Laptops, yep. you know, that's kind of a legacy thing. But but certainly in everything that's been launched since the iPhone, they are doing a pretty good job of covering covering the bases in terms of yeah. what and you
0: want to next. write them off because they aren't doing as much as Amazon and Google are with with respect to voice. I, I would argue Siri is behind mm. in what sure. the Amazon and Google have shown is possible with voice interface, but Apple has has shown the ability to catch up quickly and then to dominate a category time and again. And so they tend to consolidate when they enter a category. And we could see that same thing play out in, in Smart Home and some of these other areas that uh, experimentation is taking place in right now. I would say
1: what they're benefiting from at this point,
0: and we've I've you know, raise this
1: uh, numerous times is the lack of discoverability in voice interfaces. So I would agree that they are behind in capability, but they are not necessarily behind in application, given the range of things people are using this for.
0: Next story, moving on from all things Google, it, we saw Netflix report Q3 revenue this week, five point two five billion, up thirty-one percent year over year. They announced 158 million paid subscribers globally, which is up 21%. So they did pretty good on the international front. Net ads of about 6.8 million, up uh, 12% year over year, but below the 7 million that the company had forecast. So they, they miss on their net ads. And to me, what was most interesting was in their quarterly letter to investors. They spent uh, about a page and a half talking about competitors, that are coming on the horizon like Disney plus and, and Apple plus Peacock and other streaming services. We also saw this uh, this week, some news around Disney plus that they're set to launch with 35 originals in the first year, hoping to grow subscribers to somewhere between 60 million and 90 million by 2024 that coming from an article in the Hollywood reporter. So you've got uh, a lot of competition and Netflix seems to be suggesting that, um, that, Hey, yes, we see this competition. We've been planning for this competition for a very long time. That's why we started investing in original content back in 2012. Yep. Yeah. Fair yeah, point, point there. That's accurate. Yeah. Um, and their argument is that this just accelerates the move away from linear television. So all these, Competitors aren't really competing against Netflix, they're competing against all the other things that that uh, are in competition for our attention, especially for our screen time, primarily cable television, linear television, gaming, and, and other things like that. And so I guess
1: the implica- my read on that is that if linear television dies or if everyone cuts the cord, then that uh, leads to more awareness of and more likely adoption of Netflix, because even though certainly in the first few years, uh, most of the Netflix subscribers were cable subscribers anyway, just because they were more affluent, once you have all these competing services and people say, OK, if I want to access you know, three or four of these things and I have to get rid of cable, then netflix is going to be on that short list yeah I guess, is their and argument, i think that right?
0: their argument is that down yeah. the road perhaps a decade into this we'll start to see competition across the streaming competitors when linear television has has largely gone away but we have a decade to enjoy more growth if you will and that um we, you know, we're still investing in original content, and that's what's going to really help differentiate us from our from our competitors. You've talked a lot about, and we've talked a lot about on this podcast, though, just the the risk of subscription fatigue. That at what point do you stop yep. paying for multiple subscriptions? And uh, arguably, if you have children, Disney Plus is very well positioned. You're getting Amazon Video. Prime Video, if you're a Prime member. So you've got a couple of video subscriptions if you're in that market.
1: If you've got an iPhone, you're going to get Apple TV for free
0: for a year. Apple TV Plus for free for a year. And if Netflix has lost a lot of the the catalogs that are now being dedicated to these subscription services, then they're left to only compete on their original content, which right now looks like Stranger Things, and you know is that enough to bring new subscribers in is it enough to maintain existing subscribers can original content hold down the fort
1: we have kind of a um a, a nice long precedent in hbo uh to some extent i mean uh i don't i don't think their subscriber base was ever as as big as netflix's and of course for most of its existence it was dependent on the cable uh, infrastructure uh but um uh hbo has managed to keep the that must-see series going uh over the course of, of the past decade i think is at least a safe bet you know kind of starting with the sopranos and and moving on from there and of course uh peaking recently with game of thrones uh which was just just a juggernaut um so um so it's, on one level, a good example of how, if you're smart and lucky and, you know, have the right talent, you can continue to draw in users. I, I think there are a few uh, open questions, though. Uh, in, in a world where there's so much uh, competition are, and no contracts, are are people going to service hop a lot right like oh game of thrones you know everyone's talking about game of thrones let me uh you know if i want to <laughs> pursue it the legitimate way you know let me let me subscribe to hbo now for a month or right. two and i'll binge on that i'm gonna move on over to you know uh peacock to catch whatever cool thing is over there uh on on the other hand Sean, to your point about i i, th- I think for some time uh, Netflix has relied on on the strength of its originals, uh, and that is what 's drawing people to the service and uh, whether that 's keeping them there i, I think that's that 's a harder <laughs> argument but but the real challenge is that taking away all these promotions they are yeah. just expensive i mean you know what are they like thirteen dollars now or you know eleven ninety nine for kind of the mainline subscription um, you can get Uh, And again, if you're not getting them some other way, you can certainly get Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus for uh, less than that um, and probably something else thrown in as well. Uh, so, So if you move off this linear base and people are looking for a wide range of entertainment, uh and they're they're going to be drawn to to that disney ip i mean it's it's super powerful that's it's the strongest in the industry
0: it isn't just their catalog that they're relying on but they're going to bring a bunch of originals which will essentially be exclusive content that Mm -hmm. that people are going to want access to especially within you know certain demographics of of the population in the letter to investors netflix did talk about they had a, a good page and a half about their content. They talked about expanding their non-English language original offerings. I do think that that's a very Mm -hmm. compelling offering in international markets, especially markets that maybe haven't had the same uh, investment or appetite for investment in original content. Here comes Netflix willing to invest in original content that uh, is non-English. And is of high quality. So I do think there's some really interesting opportunities there for Netflix in the international market. And that's probably a, a segment of the market that they could own for a, a very long time because it doesn't look like any of the other streaming services are, are at least right now, focused on these, uh, these markets that are, that are non-English looking for original content.
1: Right, but but look at what they're able to charge for the service Definitely. In, in a lot yes. of those
0: economies. You yes. know?
1: What is it in India, like two bucks a month? Or, right, you know, yes. The prices so. will
0: be much lower, uh, and so you hope you make that up with volume. Right. Well, you know Whether the content can be produced for less is a big question. I think also – Probably. You also see, and they noted in the letter, with so many firms now looking to provide premium video content consumers, it's a great time to be a – a creator of content in other words creating premium content has gotten expensive right you know, and, and they know right. that amazing content can be expensive and so the uh it, you know it's a great time to be the the levi's of the gold rush providing the content to these platforms and getting them in bidding wars for some of the yep. best content yep well they're Uh, margins get compressed because everybody's competing around monthly subscriptions and and trying to keep prices low so i i
1: think
0: they you know i
1: think they have thrown a lot of stuff against the wall i don't know if you saw this review of what's that show that they have the island or something and uh, one reviewer called it you know the, the worst thing that's ever been on television <laughs> it's like really really harsh review i and of course you know that that drove me and i'm sure many other people to check out an episode or two uh but um uh and 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 they they blamed the uh netflix's policy of going straight to series right of not having a pilot mm-hmm. um where some of these perhaps structural flaws, uh, might have been, uh, might've been caught. So, so yeah, Sean, you tell me about rising costs and, and more competition. And that leads me to the conclusion that they, yes, they have to continue to invest, but they have to be more selective, I, I think as well. So, yeah. So and maybe that's it is, where you know you mentioned the gold rush, but but maybe it is a little bit less of the wild west now. So
0: yeah, I think I agree with that, and and they have had a long history of leveraging their data on their users to identify mm-hmm. where they should be investing, right? And maybe that maybe now they've built up enough insights from that data that they can invest mm-hmm. more, you know, more wisely and not have to to uh, throw things against the wall. At the same time, you're trying to gain new users. And so uh, you don't always have data on who those individuals are and how you're going to bring them into the flock. And so uh, th- there's definitely some headwinds for them and some hurdles that they're going to have to overcome. And, you know, and maybe over time, what we see happen is Netflix has a genre of original content that is unique to them that is highly differentiated from the Peacocks and the uh, you know, Disney Pluses and Apple Pluses of the world, but that Netflix becomes known for some type of original content. Maybe that won't be the same sizable market that they've enjoyed, but that they do they can't charge a premium for that type of content because it's unique to them and they've built yeah, out I, their, their expertise.
1: Yeah, I, I think they have an opportunity to acquire IP. Um, uh, through, you know, a- acquisition of, of brands that have been built the same way Disney did, you know, what, what started the Disney, uh, you know, w- what started their, their huge run over the past few years was acquiring Lucasfilm and acquiring Marvel studios. Right. And, and, and also acquiring Pixar, right. Um, further back. So those were, you know, three powerhouse, uh, uh, homes of, of IP, um and a lot of these other competitors have them too. Again, many grew by acquisitions, some I guess were homegrown. So that's what they have to be on the uh on the lookout for. You know, they're probably they can't afford to shell out whatever Disney uh shelled out for uh Lucasfilm and to acquire Fox, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the huge amount of IP that that they acquired through that as well. Uh but New, new things will be developed uh, and and that 's one opportunity for them. I think another opportunity for them is picking up franchises that other companies have moved on from uh i i don't know if it was them i i think i think it may have been netflix but but someone just acquired the rights to the sequel to um the band of brothers you know which was a huge series on hbo years ago uh and uh and hbo either didn't bid for it or lost the bid for it or whatever uh, so you know one of one of these newer um, disruptors amazon Netflix maybe apple uh, that that don't have all this homegrown IP uh, are are going ha- have an incentive to be aggressive there so yeah,
0: yeah, I agree with that well that's probably a good place to leave it. Uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of tech expansive We uh, look forward to Joining you next week with more new original content. In, in the meantime, <laughs> no, we encourage not you not to check Not acquiring any more IP. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we are the uh, cheapest subscription on the block. So we, <laughs> we invite you back next week to join us again. I'm Sean dubrevac at Avrio Institute. You can find me on Twitter at Sean dubrevac
1: And I'm Ross Rubin at Redical Research. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin.